Let's pray together, shall we? We pray, Heavenly Father, that as we gather here this morning, that your word would be illuminated in our lives, that we would see you at the very center of all things, that you would challenge and convict us, that you would also love us and show us your kingdom. We pray we would hear of you and hear from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're not used to church, what tends to happen here is you sort of get about 15, 20 minutes of just sharing what this passage is about. Amy's obviously very happy in church, aren't you? (laughs) And so she should be because she belongs. But the question, of course, is then, well, who is this passage for? Uh, What's it really about? It can't really be saying the message that you probably heard as Richard kindly read that for us, which is sell everything if you're a Christian. I mean, that's not really a very good marketing strategy for expanding the number of people in the kingdom of God, is it? That you have to get rid of everything to be a Christian. It would probably half empty this church and most churches in Britain today if that's what I started preaching on right now. But what if that is the message behind this? Maybe our possessions... Our wealth, though you may not think at this present moment you have any wealth, but maybe later you'll hear otherwise, maybe our attitude to them reveals an awful lot about you and me and the person you sit next door to or live next door to or the people you meet at the school gate or at work. Let me give you a story. It's not a true story, it's just a little joke. But it's about two men who sell Tower Bridge. Well, they try to, anyway. Now, you and I know that Tower Bridge does not belong to anybody. In fact, if anybody, it probably belongs to the Queen. And so two men decided that they would hit on a, a, a little wheeze, a scam, just, a, just an apocryphal story here. And they decided that one of them would stand at the north end because they were bright buttons, and one would stand at the south end. And the guy at the north end would try and sell Tower Bridge to people as they came across. And when they got to the south end, anybody that hadn't bought Tower Bridge, the guy at the south end would try and sell it to them just to make sure that they got everybody. All these people walking across Tower Bridge, passing the first man on the north side, passing the guy on the south side, and they would try and sell Tower Bridge to them. At the end of the day, they met together in the middle. The man from the north end was really quite excited. He'd managed to sell Tower Bridge five times. Ten pound a piece he'd sold it for. Now, I can work out that's 50 pounds. He was quite excited. That was good pub money, he felt, as he spoke to his friend. And he thought, well, you're going to have at least doubled that, aren't you, from the people that I missed. And so he said to him, look, how did you do on the south side? And the guy on the south side said, you know, it's the strangest thing, he said. But every time that I came up to somebody come from the north side and said, would you like to buy Tower Bridge? They said to me each time, but I've already bought it. It's mine already. As it's mine, it can't be yours. I'm going to report you to the police for selling my property, unless you give me 20 pounds. Some of you are very slow, but you're getting there, aren't you? And so the man said, from the north side, he said, did you, did you give them the 20 pound? That would wipe out all our profit. He said, oh, no, do you take me for a fool? He said, no, what I did instead was I said to them, I'll tell you what, to each of the five of them, you give me 100 pound each, and I have worked out that the guy on the north side, I don't need him anymore because I can keep it all to myself. And so if you give me 100 pound each, 
I'll give you all the evidence that you need to arrest him. What you do with your possessions reveals a great deal about your attitudes. In the end, it could even destroy your marriage. It could destroy your relationship with your children or your grandchildren. It could destroy your own attitudes to yourself. It could destroy your relationships with your boss at work. It can destroy friendships. But have you thought of it that what, that what you would sell your soul for could actually destroy your relationship if you have one with Jesus Christ and if you don't have one could be a barrier to living a life of great fruitfulness in the kingdom of God into eternity? But let's ask you a question. What is Jesus saying to us in this passage? We've got another image there. Thank you. Three pictures there on, on the screen just for the, for this, um, for the CD. We've got, we've got a monkey, we've got a man on a chair, and we've got a hand full of love. You see, when this rich young ruler, we find that in three, this, this passage is told three times in what are called the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's not told in John's gospel. And we're told tantalizingly different bits of information in each one. And when you put them together, you find he's a rich young ruler, a rich young man of the ruling class. He's a man with power, prestige, wealth. He's got it all. He's also got the enthusiasm of youth, as you can see, as he comes skidding to the ground in front of Jesus, if you look in your Bible there. And he throws himself on his knees on a dusty road, and the stones are going to go into his knees there, and yet he is still going to throw himself there. He's got that passion and enthusiasm that some of us had when we were slightly younger. I'm sure, Simon, at 40, you've still got it. But the thing is, when Jesus looks at him, he sees none of that. What he sees is, is this man walking in the true light of God. And that's what amazes everybody, an amazed monkey. That's what amazes everybody in this passage. It might even amaze you, because that's not your image of Christianity. In verse 26, look at the disciples. They are surprised. Look at verse 32. We're then told a little bit later, they're not just surprised anymore, they are totally astonished. And then if you look in verse 28, you find that Peter acts as the spokesman for them, as he often does, and he comes forward boldly and brashly, and, and he's making bold statements in his shock of what's being said here. And then in verse 22, look at the man's reaction to Jesus. He's already fallen on his knees, and now his face falls to the ground. Because it is not what any of them are expecting. They are amazed. And Jesus and the man are both sorrowful. There is shock there. And then the hand, perhaps in a minute. What does it bring into sharp focus? It brings in, in verse 32 onwards, the death of Jesus. It's the third time it's predicted it in Mark's Gospel. It's predicted three times, and this is the third time. And so we are being told by Mark here that this is of eternal consequence. This is not just about, is this guy a rich guy? Is this guy a bit flashy? Does this guy have too much self-esteem and needs to be knocked down a little bit? It's nothing to do with that. It is to do with the eternity and to do with Jesus and what is going to happen next on the way to Jerusalem, verse 32 onwards. They're in the drama of approaching Jerusalem, a place we know of as death. It's a bit like when you've watched a thriller or something on TV, and you know what's going to happen next, because you've seen all the clues, you've been let in on the story. 
And we know what's going to happen in Mark's gospel, most of us, because we're fairly familiar with it. But then they don't know yet. And we know that they don't know. And it's all like I trying to say to them, look, can't you see what's going to happen? Look, guy, get off the ground. This Jesus guy is going to die for you. And all you're talking about is how much money you've got in your pocket. How good you've been. How many commandments you can tick off on your bedroom wall today. We know what he doesn't know. And Mark's telling you that's how important it is. You already know. I already know. At which point some of you are sitting there thinking, well, okay, tell me some more, Simon. Others of you are thinking, okay, let's switch off now. This doesn't really interest me. For those who are interested, you're like the man who came at that first moment, eager to Jesus. To others here, maybe you're like the man as he turns, verse 22 onwards, and he leaves, empty-handed. To Jesus, all the wealth in the world, every kingdom under the sun, the number of rooms in your home, the dimensions of your television, the pot that is building for your pension, they have significance only when they bring you and I closer to a walk with Christ, into the kingdom of God, or whether they have become invisible millstones and necklaces that evoke pity and sadness from the king of love. Verses 21 and verses 23. He looks with a man with great sympathy. There's no hatred in Jesus. There's no arrogance in Jesus. There's no pumped up pride in Jesus. He just looks at the man because the man, he knows what the man needs. But Jesus is not going to impose it on him. And so why in that hand there with all those love words? Why is there love here? I mean, why doesn't Jesus condemn the man? Why doesn't he rebuke him? Why is there no, not a hint of anger in Mark's Gospel's account of this? Because if Jesus knows best, why does not he just impose the answer on the man? Couldn't he put a little bit of guilt on him? Couldn't he demand a share of his wealth just to help him out? Maybe that's what some groups and people would do. Maybe you've heard that in churches before. Why does he just let the man leave with his shoulders hunched and a look of sadness on his face. Because the choice is his. And mine and yours too. And so if you move on to my next uh, image, John, thank you. If you move from what Jesus is saying there to what the man is saying to you and I, you see the man has already filled the pots loyally, uh, outwardly, doing very good things. Obediently. I'm sure you're a good person. I'm sure you're a great person. When I discuss baptisms with people, and just out there, just before, when I talk to the godparents, I, I always say to people, the ch Christian church is not here to make a liar of you. If there are some of those promises you cannot save integrity before the living God, don't say them just to become a godparent. You can be a godparent anyway. That's between you and God. But don't, don't be forced into lying to God in, in, a, in a Christian church. If you think being a good person is enough, then that's the choice and decision that you have made. And this man is doing all the right things outwardly to be good. He's doing them all and he's ticking them all off. And Jesus is not rebuking him for those things. He's not saying, no, these are wrong. But he says there is more. Verse 21, he sees the genuine desire of the man. He sees into the man's heart. So many people around you are good people, kind people, generous people. You can't fault them. But the point is it's not for you and I to fault anybody. 
The measure and mark is not about what the man has done, it's about the deepest place of your soul. The innermost heartbeat of your heart, verse 19. Romans 7:24. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? You see, it's the, it's the complete opposite of what the man's expecting. It's probably the complete opposite of what you're expecting from church this morning. But Jesus then offers an answer. For this man, his wealth has inoculated him from Jesus Christ. And maybe, like me, you sat there at the beginning as I started reading this passage, and you thought something like this, well, that's okay then, because I'm not very rich. Or maybe others of you are thinking, but my wealth is already for the Lord. But even so, do I have to sell everything, Simon? Do I have to sell everything? Well, if you look at verses 17 to 27, the passage divides into three. 17 to 27, it is all about money and possessions. There's no question about it. It is about your attitude to the money that the Lord has loaned you to use for this life at the moment. But then you go to verse 28 to 31, it is not about money any longer. The Lord is not only interested in this man's pockets. It is then about everything that enriches your life. The things you might call your good things of life. I don't know what they may be. Perhaps your good thing of life is your garden. Perhaps your good thing of life is a lion on a Sunday morning. But it widens to the things that enrich people. And then verse 29, to make it even more personal, it's not now about money, it's not now about the good things of life, it's very personal. It's all about relationships. It's all there in a package. Your possessions, your money, your finance, your belongings, the things that enrich you, and your deepest relationships. Jesus is saying here, all of that can become a barrier. All of it and any of it can become a barrier. It's not really about sell everything, verse 21, but about come, follow me. And be willing to sell everything if you're called to it. And that's a slightly different thing. It's a call to true discipleship, the true discipleship that means examining our lives in light of Christ rather than the darkness of the standards you'll see around you in the world. The force in the story is, is, is not that riches in themselves are hindrances. It's more than that. It's a question for you and I. What hinders your entry and walk with the Lord this morning? Maybe you're like Revelation 3.17, the church of Laodicea. Seemingly great. Maybe this is a message to Christ the Lord as a church this morning. Maybe it's a message to me as the vicar. Maybe it's a message to you and your family. I am rich. I've acquired great wealth. I don't need anything now. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked, says God. And so Jesus says, it's a bit like trying to stick a camel through the eye of a needle. In other words, not really possible. And I was thinking, well, how can I bring all that towards a close and into something that makes perhaps an image that will stay in your mind? And perhaps you're like me, you knew of people of a past age, perhaps even in your own family. If we could move on to my next image, John, thank you. Some pots. And maybe these evoke a distant memory for some of you. Or you'll have heard of this, you'll have heard of this, I'm sure. It's a story 
Not true again, but I'm sure you'll see the truths in it. A little old lady in her kitchen, probably a very yellowed old tiles, probably of quite an old metal stainless steel sink that's been rubbed by, and scrubbed by things over the years because really she hasn't really got the funds to replace the sink. In a slightly older kitchen, we might even say that the carpets are threadbare. And this elderly lady, who's done nothing wrong, as she's aware, in her whole life, she simply lived a good life, tried hard, brought the children up well. She has on her windowsill a line of bottles, glass bottles, old jam jars, melt bottles, things that she really wouldn't want to throw away in her frugal living in existence, because she would like to take care. And each pot has got a little a label written on it, glued on very carefully years and years ago, and the writing is faded. And each of the writings say things like this. For the children. My next pair of shoes. For when the grandchildren come. For so-and-so's eighth birthday. To pay the rent next week. For the milkman. And a little note in the milkman, one saying, a little bit overdue, add more next week to this pot. And each pot has different pennies and notes and pounds and a couple of checks in it. Y you can see that, can't you? You can see that image in your head. Because you may not have seen it yourself, but you know what I'm saying, that this really did happen in an age gone by for many, many people in this nation. There is a care about it which many of us have completely put into the rubbish bin. And now we're wondering why life isn't quite as it was cracked up to be. This lady does not live on credit. Maybe her credit is with the Lord Jesus. And on the end, you'll just notice, and you say, we go up to her and we say to her, what is that pot there? It hasn't got a label on it. And she said, oh, that's for the everything else pot. It's the rainy day pot. It's the pot when all the other pots run out. And it's when I haven't got enough in one, I borrow from that pot to put in another pot. Or if I've, if I've paid the milkman, if I've paid the rent, if the children have shoes, if I've got enough food in the fridge, then I can go to that pot and I can go and buy myself something. It's the little gift pot. It's the pot for holidays. The niceties, the things that enrich your life. And then we leave her there. And we understand that and we know that image. And we go home. A few days later, we pick up the local paper. And there's a picture of that smiling, saintly old lady there in the, in the front of the paper. And so, of course, we look at it. And because we're interested, because we've just met her, we scan through the story, wondering, well, what's this story going to say about this lady? She's not really done anything famous, has she? And the story goes something like this as we scan through. A lady, burgled, loses everything, puts up strong resistance. The strong man prevailed. She lost everything. Funeral next Wednesday. No flowers. Police investigating. Every single one of her pots, all her joys, all her sorrows, all her hopes, all her aspirations, all her possessions, all her careful living, all her goodness and kindness and generosity, all her looking to the future, all her having it sewn up, all the pots lined up ready and waiting, everything in its own place for its own time, all good pots, nothing nasty, nothing sinful, nothing mean there, but there was one pot missing. It was not enough. It was not enough. I wonder if that's me 
if I'm honest, in the depth of my Christian life. I think I've got it sewn up. I think it's all there. I think I am successful, even in my Christianity. To gain the world, but to lose your soul is a terrible price to bear. To close, Matthew 16, verse 16, the revised back standard version. For what shall a man be profited if he gains the whole world, but he forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? What happens when we're released from the attachment to your pots? Four very brief things. Firstly, Jesus takes center stage. Job 1.21, Luke 14, verse 33. We begin to see that everything you have comes from God. It still belongs to God. It's loaned by God, and he'll ask you about your things one day. Luke 8, verse 3. The rich, it is rich women who fund the ministry of Jesus. It is affluent women that fund the ministry of Jesus. Luke 8, verse 3. Often overlooked. Others who give time for Jesus. People who give their lives for Jesus. Acts 12, we see a lady called Mary who opens her house to have a church in her home for Jesus. And of course, her son, John Mark, writes what you've just been hearing about. And he puts pen to paper for Jesus. These people give everything for Jesus Christ. Their pots are there, but their pots are known in their place. Christian discipleship is not about my spare time or my spare change. Secondly, we gain God's reward, verses 30 and 28. There will be persecution. There is also God's provision in eternal terms. Thirdly, you gain eternal life. Matthew 19, verse 16 is good on that. And fourthly, it's like being on a sightseeing tour Looking at the biggest and the best, Mark 13, 1, the, the disciples are just amazed by what they see. Herod's palace, wow, it's amazing. This, this, this rich young ruler, he must be amazing. And Jesus says, no, you are amazing. You are amazing. That little old lady is amazing. You matter to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus does not accept the man's flattery. He points to flattery to the God who made the man in the first place. And so to close, the pots lay smashed the police have come and called. It's been called and off, and the tape has been taken away. They think they found somebody and they've arrested him for murder. The funeral has come and the funeral has gone. And in the midst of that debris, the family have gathered, thunderstruck, surprised, amazed, shocked. I mean, she was just a good person, wasn't she? And as they open the drawer to find the will, a little note falls out. And they read it out together. To my loving family, I had little to spare for you in life. I gave you all I could and had, but there was one thing I never told you. Every time I placed a penny in your pot for clothes or saved for our next meal, before the penny entered that pot, I paused and I said a prayer. I sought the Lord. I didn't tell him what I wanted next, but I thanked him for my blessings. And did he need this money back directly? And I asked that I would walk closer by him day by day. Only you know if you've skidded before the Lord on your knees. Only you know if you've responded to him. And he doesn't look at you with pity, but he looks at you with amazing love and says, Welcome, Amy. Welcome, Simon, to the kingdom of heaven to be lived on earth today. Amen.